Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And it is the holiday season. Yes, it is. It is. That is a statement of fact. And uh, it's a statement of uh, fiction. What's your take on Santa? Does Santa come to your house? Did Santa come to your house as a child? Santa uh, and the idea of Santa was dashed by my brother when I was but a tender six-year-old. So my feelings on Santa are, yeah, pretty whatever. Yeah. You know, he's he's a jolly old guy. And I do find as an adult, though, that his presence is a bit creepy. Well, I feel like to a certain extent he should be a little creepy because, I mean, there are, you know, not to spend much time on it, but there are a lot of different versions of Santa. You have the the sort of uh, westernized American Santa who is just kind of a an, an overly positive, jolly, fat man who brings you gifts and and there's it's just all good. There's you know and you sit on his lap. You sit on his lap and and it's so positive that it like a certain amount of darkness creeps into it. But then there are the older models, you know, sort of a gaunt uh, Saint Nicholas, uh, etc. These these type of characters I feel like have more of an inherent darkness to them. Mm-hmm. So they they tend not to be as creepy because they're already the, the creepiness doesn't grow on it like mold over time. <laughs> it's already part of the design. So you're you're talking about more of the European representation of Santa Claus or Saint. Claus, the Dutch yes. Santa. Yeah, the, the Dutch Santa in particular. Um, because not only is he a bit dark and, and a little more, uh, I mean, he's still bringing you gifts. He's still the, the good cop. But mm-hmm. there's also a bad cop to this uh, scenario. And in this, I'm, of course, talking about Krampus. Krampus, the holiday demon, the the or one of many types of, Kr- of Krampuses, the the the, the horned beasts that come down from the, the hills uh, in a, in the period before the feast of Saint Nicholas and terrorize naughty children, and in some cases beat them with sticks or haul them off altogether, uh, perhaps to hell. Uh, so, they, but but they come they come in advance, and there are other characters like this, like Bell's Nickel, um, and, and that that come and sort of terrorize the children and. And are using the stick as opposed to the carrot to try and get good good behavior out of them. Whereas the good cop, Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, whoever, or the, the baby Jesus on a golden string, if if you're uh, if you're Czech, they are the good cop, and they are trying to dangle the carrot in front of you to get positive behavior. Hmm. Okay. So we're talking about carrot and stick today. Yes. What we respond to, and I just want to uh, read a little um, excerpt from Santa. I don't know um, if you've heard this before. A quote from Santa? Well, actually, it's... Did you it's reach from, out to him for this episode? It's one of Santa's elves. Sorry. Oh, okay. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been good or bad. So be good for goodness sake. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that. That's the... That's the, the Those are the famous words. Well, I, I just can't help but think back to the Panopticon. Yeah. Because we talked about this. We talked about the seeing eye of God... And the panopticon, of course, is the actual structure that was meant as this concentric uh, prison system with this watchtower in the middle that was watching all of the prisoners all the time. But doesn't this sound a it bit does. like Santa Claus, whether or not it's Santa or Krampus, really? Yeah, the, the Santa or Krampus, they become this uh, uh, panoptic uh, figure at the center of everything. They're all knowing. They're all judging. And, uh, and it's... Right to be afraid of them, right? And and uh, and in a, we talked in the Panopticon episode about how it's also the the seat of God in a, in a belief system. The mm-hmm. idea that there's this divine figure that's looking down on you and knows everything you've done and knows what you're doing. And so, 
that's one of the interesting things about this whole Christmas uh, scenario for children with the uh, with the good cops and the bad yeah. cops with the carrot and the stick because it's it's basically a uh, a mini day of of doom. I've heard I've heard it referred to. <laughs> it's like a a model of the uh, of the more elaborate system that the uh, the adults would have had. Uh, in which, you know, it's a situation of heaven and hell, of fire and brimstone or eternal salvation. And then for the children, it's kind of reduced to a more simpler uh, model. Well, yeah, it's an initiation into the panopticon system yeah. or basically this idea of heaven and hell. Yes. Yeah. On a simple level, like people who believe in a, in a divine being and gods or, or goddesses, like is any given particular god, is it? Is it going to be a benign God that rewards you for good behavior, or mm-hmm. is it a uh, judgmental, uh, harsh, angry God that is all about punishing you for sin? And then to what degree do you end up using both? And what sort of personality are you, right? I mean, that's kind of what I probably would have thought about it before. Are you a personality that responds more to rewards or to the possibility of punishment? But it turns out to be a, a bit deeper than that. And, of course, it always does, right? Yeah, I mean, with with humans, of course, there's so many layers of cognition that end up being involved, especially in, in something like religion. But even in folk tales for children, uh, it just gets complicated really fast. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, what we're going to talk about here in the the rest of this episode is that there does appear to be uh, certain genetic factors at work here, too. We can actually look at individual genes that are involved in how we deal with positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, with the carrot or the stick, the good cop or the bad cop, the Santa Claus or the Krampus. Because, of course, it always boils down to that brain Yes. What's going on and how we are genetically predisposed. Of course, genetics isn't everything, but it's very interesting when it comes to something like this. So, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the genetics of reward and punishment. Yes, the holidays are here, and perhaps you want a little holiday viewing. Well, head on over to Netflix.com where you can find various uh, videos, TV shows, movies, feature films, classics, uh, bad movies as well, horror movies, all with a holiday theme to them that you can plug into your brain. Uh, and as a new member and a Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener, you can get a free 30-day trial membership. All you have to do is go to Netflix.com slash Blow the Mind and sign up. Be sure to use that URL, Netflix.com slash Blow the Mind. That way they'll know that we sent you, you're supporting this this podcast while also benefiting your eyeballs. Uh, you can play all this stuff on your Xbox, uh, your PlayStation, your mobile device. Uh, selection subject to change, but it's always a great deal. So go to Netflix.com slash Blow the Mind, sign up today. All right, we're back. Uh, now let's travel on over to the Netherlands, not to sit on the lap of Sinterklaas, but to visit with Hanukkah den Oden in Flaschen Kuhls and their colleagues from the Donders Institute in Nijmegen in the Netherlands. Because they have published some very interesting research in the journal, journal Neuron. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Nijmegen is, uh, in east, is in the east of the Netherlands near the German border. So that's definitely St. Nicholas territory. And, uh, and I believe that's Krampus territory as well. Uh, people may have to correct us on that, but I think he's around there. So... What was uh, what was old uh, Heineke interested in? Well, uh, in this study uh, that they conducted, they demonstrated that serotonin and dopamine-related genes influence how we base our choices on past punishments and rewards. Now, 
We believe for a while that brain chemicals, uh, dopamine and serotonin, partially determine our sensitivity to reward and punishment, right? I mean, after all, dopamine is uh, is a neurotransmitter that helps us control the brain's reward and pleasure centers, and serotonin is keyed into emotion, mood, control, digestion, etc. I mean, we've talked about about serotonin and dopamine countless times mm-hmm. and how they end up dictating uh, who we are and how we behave. But you have gene variants for these, right? Yes. And that would influence your behavior when it came to punishment and reward, And to test this, the researchers used a simple computer game to test the genetic influence of the genes DAT1, that's the dopamine-related gene, and CERT, S-E-R-T, that's the serotonin-related gene, as these genes influence dopamine and serotonin. Yeah, the variance of note here uh, for uh, for CERT is uh, 5-HTTLPR plus RS255. And then for DAT1, or DAT1, Mm -hmm. which... Seems to, it seems to me that one would lead to all sorts of hilarity in the research room, but I could be wrong. Uh, but anyway, the variant uh, with that one is 30-U-T-R-V-N-T-R-31. Very nice, very nice. Um, during the study, they had 700 participants who would repeatedly choose one of two symbols. Symbol A, which usually resulted in a, in a reward, or symbol B, which usually resulted in punishment. And halfway through the game, however, there was a twist. The rules were reversed, and this allowed researchers to measure how flexible people were in adjusting to their choices. And it also revealed whether they impulsively changed their choice when the computer uh, gave them misleading feedback. So in other words, they had to sort of readjust and figure out whether or not it's going to be a reward or a punishment. And it's interesting, because growing up, is uh, is kind of a, a situation of finding the rules changing on you all the time. Like, what's yeah. this? I I can't poop in my pants anymore. I no longer have that option. That's a that's a that's a game changer. And how am I going to roll with that? What's this? I I, I can't just uh, you know run around the house half naked. Oh, I have to change. Well, you know, we're always dealing with changes or changes in our diet as we get older. Uh, you know, or Santa Claus not real? Are you kidding? Nobody's watching <laughs> me. Now I get to assess punishment and reward in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. And then how do you end up rolling with that? Yeah. Life is full of revelations and new rules. And our ability to roll with those rules or not roll them kind of ends up where we we land in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the big result here is that they discover that the dopamine gene affects how we learn from the long-term consequences of our choices. Well, the serotonin gene affects our choices in the short term. So it would follow that some people would be a little bit more hardwired to um, err on the side, say, of being able to learn well with from long-term consequences, or they might be more motivated by choices in the short term. Yeah, people's tendency to change their choices immediately after receiving punishment uh, depends on which serotonin gene variant they inherited from their parents. So, in other words, CERT is involved in behavioral adaptation following losses. Mm-hmm. In other words, the stick. Uh, whereas uh, the dopamine gene variant, on the other hand, exerts influence on whether people can stop themselves making the incorrect choice that was previously rewarded. Uh, in other words, DAT one that one plays a role. That one, ex- that one plays a, a role in experience-based preservation or the carrot. Okay. So this is important because a lot of neuropsychiatric disorders caused by abnormal dopamine and or serotonin levels are associated with forms of inflexibility like addiction, anxiety, or Parkinson's disease. So you see this being played out in, in various chemicals in the brain in the extreme. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so in this, it goes that the, the ramifications of a study like this are far more than just oh, we know a little bit about more about how we behave and mm-hmm. how we inherit uh, aspects of who we are. But yeah, this is actually stuff that we'll uh, be able to use in the future to uh, to deal with some of these uh, crippling disorders. All right. So there is an interesting blog called Neuroscience and the Law, and it's edited by Alex Verbeck, who says a quote a minority of Parkinson's patients who undergo dopamine based therapies will develop persistent and potentially ruinous impulsive behavior disorders, for example, chronic gambling. Mm. And this is in patients with no prior history of problem gambling. But once they start to get some of the dopamine based therapies, their behavior changes. Now, Verbeck goes on to say that um, that. You can look at, say, chronic metamphetamine use, right, mm-hmm. meth, and you can see that it mimics or reproduces the effects of genetic mutations that would predispose someone to impulsive or injurious choices. And what Verbeck goes on to say is that the majority of programs um, have a long-term thinking and planning these rehabilitation programs for meth addicts. And what happens is that they suffer from a high washout rate or a high recidivism rate Mm -hmm. because of this, because it's not really appealing to more of what we would say is the carrot here. And that this is something that when you're talking about neuroscience and law and you're talking about addicts, that you really need to think about in terms of rehabilitation, that inherently the system isn't set up for success if it's not appealing to, to the correct ways in which the person perceives the reward or the punishment. Yeah, they have more carrot wiring in them at this point. And yeah. therefore, uh, it would make sense that you would, that any kind of uh, rehabilitation program would need to be more carrot centric. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and this is true of kids too, even in terms of lying. We've discussed kids and how much they lie. Something like a six year old drops a whopper every like <laughs> 90 minutes uh-huh. by whopper. I mean, lie. Um, we were talking yeah. scat earlier, so yeah, just yeah. to be clear. Um, but it turns out that, again, the reward and not the punishment is really key into curbing lying in kids because when they see that they haven't been punished for lying, they actually will uh, stop the lying, whereas if they get punished, they continue to do it over and over again. And there's some really interesting studies in this book called Nurture Shock mm-hmm. by Poe Bronson and Ashley uh, Merrimick, and they go over this territory, but the point that seems to be arising, at least from a good amount of scenarios, is that the stick isn't always that helpful. And yet, it's one of the I would say pillars of society, at least Western society. Yeah, I mean, you look. I mean, that's that's, that's always been a big issue, of course, in, in crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent does does uh, does prison just become a punishment? To, to what extent do we, as a culture, become uh, just completely wrapped up in the idea of punishing the guilty rather than trying to uh, rehabilitate people and turn them around and give them some sort of carrot at the end of the hallway? You know what's weird? What's weird? I came across this study that said that if you want to be able to control your impulse, right? And mm-hmm. let's say that you're you're in this situation and you're there's a, a buffet in front of you. You are actually going to be able to control those impulses, not by the reward or the punishment of the situation, but by your bladder, oh. whether or not it's full. And I'm not talking about bursting full because, mm-hmm. you know, then no cognition occurs other than, hey, I have to go to the bathroom right now. But according to Dr. Mearsham Tuck, who, who uh, led a study on this, the brain's control signals are not task-specific, but they actually result in an unintentional increase in control over other tasks when your bladder is full and it's saying, hey, I'm full, and you're trying to control that response to pee all over the place. Huh. 
Isn't that fascinating? Like that you're trying to control that. So then you have a plate full of food in front of you at the same time and, and, and you make the decision to control your impulse on that as well. Huh. Well, you know, I've often heard that if you're trying to control your appetite, a lot of times when we're hungry, we're actually thirsty and therefore drink more water. Right. So it, it seems like it would pay then to keep your bladder at, at kind of a full level, um, you know, not to where you're just, you know, you're risking like complete uh, urinary implosion, but uh, but just enough to keep you on edge. Like I feel it's like sometimes I'm like that in the, in the when we come in to record a podcast, mm-hmm. I'll, my, my bladder will be just full enough that I'm just a little on edge the whole time uh, without actually peeing myself. And uh, I, tend, I, I haven't really... Broken it down as to why as to why it works, but and, and, and certainly haven't thought about it much in terms of impulse control. But but I don't know. I feel like I do better. I perform better if I have a slightly full bladder. You know what? I do the same thing with podcasts sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I gotta admit. And now I'm curious about you guys out there. If there are certain tasks that you consciously do with a semi or full bladder. Yeah. And do you know you're doing that on purpose? Let us know. Yes, let us know. And hey, let us know what you think about uh, the carrot and the stick in, in pretty much any context you can imagine, be it rearing a child, being a child, uh, celebrating Christmas, um, to partaking of your culture, um, dealing with uh, with crime and punishment on a, on a national or international level. Um, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I also would love to, to hear about your own particular take on holiday traditions, to what extent they fall on the scale between, uh, you know, outright uh, uh, stick uh, thrashing uh, negativity and darkness uh, and on the other end of the scale, uh, you know, candy and puppy dog tails and bright jolly old elves and carrots. Uh, you know, since we have a few spare moments here. Let's call over the mailbot and uh, see what we have uh, to read. Alright, this one comes to us uh, from Sam. Sam writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. My name is Sam from Aberdeen, Scotland. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, and they help me get through my work day, and I love them, but this is my first message to yourselves. I was just listening to your podcast on Autotommy, and it made me think of the lizard from The Amazing Spider-Man number 6, created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in November 1963. The villain is the newest is in the newest Spider-Man movie. Dr. Kirk Connors tries to regrow his arm using lizard DNA. It works, uh, but ends up changing him into a giant crazy lizard. Uh, compared to the research is going on today with the regeneration they were thinking far ahead of their time and the dangers that may come with it obviously in a worst case scenario so it always amazes me that comic books and sci-fi from about 40 years ago are filled with science ideas that, uh, that they are researching in the modern age keep up the fantastic work thanks sam and indeed that's one of the great things as we've talked before about science fiction is that uh, it's uh, science fiction is always a, a reflection of a particular time period and their own uh, dreams aspirations and fears about where science is going to take us and uh, and and more often than not you'll find some interesting uh, um, interpretations of where we're going to go uh, in the future and some of those hold out to, to be really true they do. We also got a comment by Paula, and she is responding to a video on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, a video on smiling. And uh, we also have a podcast episode about this, too. She says, now I am a longtime smiler, admittedly tipping over into belly laughter pretty often. So definitely above that 20 smile average a day for adults. So then she goes on to say that she put a pencil in her mouth to try to mimic that pencil and smiling study. She said she didn't watch a funny, funny visual, but she thought about a scene in The Big Bang uh, television show and she that a scene actually that had her falling off the couch 
laughing when she first saw it. And she said, the smile then pushed in from the muscles further out from the edge of my mouth. When I felt that part of my cheek move, it pressed against the pencil. I felt a chortle moving from my chest to my face. I wonder if you are a habitual smile laugh person, if you routinely move more muscles in your face, uh, that you have more neuron connections, making it harder to squelch with the pencil in the mouth, Hmm. question mark. She says, you guys have given me so much to think about, but you almost always manage to get in something that also gives me a big grin, a total brain delight. Thanks, Paula. Huh. That's, I think that's a really good question. If you smile more often, do you have more neuronal connections? Um, Is it harder to not smile, essentially? Huh. That is an interesting question. And it also makes me think about... uh uh, scuba divers. What if underwater is actually really hilarious, but uh, scuba divers always have the uh, the apparatus in their <laughs> mouth, so uh, they can't laugh as much. It, it could just be absolutely hilarious down there if you're there in person, but uh-huh. they never get to laugh unless you're in some sort of specialized submarine, which is a little more rare. Huh. I I don't know. That's another test that that could uh, be completed. Yeah. I mean, because there. I was thinking about the pencil thing, and I was like, my first thoughts were smokers. Do, would it affect smokers? But of course, smokers, you don't have it in your mouth the whole time, the cigarette, and they're moving it to the corner of their lips, right? However, they are using those muscles that are drawing hmm. uh, their lips downward and the corners of them downward. And we did see in one of those 500 pencil smile frown tests that if you had the pencil vertical in sort of like a cigarette position, mm-hmm. that, that people did not get the sort of emotional jolt from others when they were looking at photos of happy people and smiling people. Huh. Well, there's an area of exploration for the future. Indeed. Yes. All right, so there you have it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us in all the normal places. Uh, of course, StuffToBlowYourMind.com is our main homepage, our mothership, and that's where you will find all of our blog posts, all of our podcast episodes dating back to the very beginning, uh, as well as our weekly uh, video series. We've been out uh, three a week these days, and uh, they're always worth checking out. Um, you can also find us on social media. We're on Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Plus, uh, on YouTube. We are Mind Stuff Show. And uh, then there's, of course, another way they might send a letter to us. That's right. You can send a letter to us, particularly if you would like to discuss if the Elf on a Shelf is just a stand-in for oh. the Panopticon Watch Tower <laughs> Guard. Uh, you can let us know at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 